Thank you, guys. Well, good morning, everybody. Ushers, if you could close and lock the doors, that'd be great. I was surprised there were not fewer of, fewer of you who got up and made your way out after Wayne let slip that I was uh, preaching this morning. Um, the ushers will be coming by later with bags of peanut M&Ms and regular M&Ms just to, to tide you over. That would have been a really good idea. I'm going to have to do that. I was, I was lying. That's all that was. They're not doing that. Um, but I'll have to do that that next time. Uh, huh? What? Oh, no. <laughs> so if David slumps over in the aisle, um, just leave him be. We'll trust him to the Lord, and we'll carry on, okay? Is that all right, David? Good, okay. All right, before we get down to brass tacks, grab your card that was in your bulletin, and uh, Dwight started unrolling this a little bit next week. I'm going to briefly, that's in air quotes, I'm going to briefly elaborate a little more on, uh, on, what's, on what's going on, and, uh, and then we'll turn to Isaiah chapter 50, chapter 52. Uh, we got this wonderful graphic here that, that Fish threw together in like five minutes, because Fish is really gifted uh, at that kind of stuff. Uh, and I wanted to uh, reiterate and elaborate a little more on on kind of our, our rationale behind this, this shift we want to make with our groups at Boone Trail. Uh, you'll know that we have a, a bunch of different groups that run around at Boone Trail. Uh, we have the Sharks, and we have the Jets, and um, wow, man, that one fell way flat. And no one here had any idea what I was talking West Side Story? Right? Thank you. Is there anyone under 30 in here who knows what West Side Story is? That, okay, thank you. Wonderful. All right. Culture. That's what it is. It's all about culture. Um, so uh, we want to clarify some of these groups that we have, whether they're home groups or Sunday morning groups, um, discipling groups, because we found that in the absence of clearly defining something, when things are kind of gray and fuzzy, do you know what happens? Everyone defines them their own way. And so, so then we have hundreds of different definitions of these groups running around. So, so we want to lay out for you a, a vision for groups at, at Boone Trail. What, what, we, what we desire for them to, to accomplish and, and why we, we would like to structure them as, as, we, would, as we would like to. And, and I'm going I'm to throw a caveat out here to begin with. We're not saying that this is gospel truth. That's not at all we're saying. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to take biblical principles and apply them to the life and ministry of Boone Trail Baptist Church in Johnson City, Tennessee in 2018, almost 2019. And so uh, this is something that's, that's up for development and up for, for change and transition going forward. This is going to come as a shock to some people, but Sunday school, uh, that, that what Jesus didn't have a Sunday school. <laughs> um, you know what Jesus did have? You know what Jesus commanded? commanded this right here. He commanded congregational worship, that his people would gather together, that they would not forsake the assembling of themselves together, that they would sing his praises, that they would hear his word read and proclaimed. It's interesting that Paul instructs Timothy, and one of the things he, he tells him is he says that he needs to be especially diligent in preaching. No. He needs to be especially diligent in, in dynamic Maxwellian leadership principles. No. He needs to be especially diligent in the public reading of the Word of God. 
we read a lot of the Bible here on Sunday mornings, I think, uh, at least by comparison to, to a lot of other uh, similar churches. Um, and that's a good thing. Because you know what doesn't transform people's lives? Preachers. You know what doesn't transform people's lives? Christians. You know what does transform people's lives? The Word of God. And so I can get up here on Sunday morning, Dwight can get up here on Sunday morning, and we can totally bomb when it comes to preaching a sermon. And you all may think, yeah, that's pretty, pretty far for the course, and that's okay. But, but you know what? The Word of God, which is what brings life and what brings transformation, has still been faithfully read, even if we totally bomb at what we're doing. The Word of God is still active and powerful and sharper than any sharp sword. So, so we gather together to sing, to pray, to read the Word of God, to have the Word of God proclaimed, to, to, to give. And we have these things called ordinances, right? There's, there's a baptistry back there. You can't really see it. There's not water in it now. Sometimes there is. There's a table here. And that baptistry and this table, you'll, you'll notice that, that this table is here every Sunday now. Uh, it wasn't always, but it's here every Sunday now, regardless of whether or not we are observing the Lord's Supper. Because this table is a symbol of that Lord's Supper, even if we don't observe it. And it's a symbol, just like the Lord's Supper is, of our union with Christ, as baptism is a symbol. But more importantly, this table and this supper is a symbol of our union with one another. And so we gather here as a body united in this Lord's Supper, in this body, and in this blood of the new covenant to worship God. So that's why congregational worship is at the very top of the funnel. Because this gathering of God's people is the most fundamental, it is the most important, it is the most impactful part of our life together as a church. It's not home groups. It's not Sunday school or Sunday morning groups. It's not discipling groups. And it's not that those things are unimportant, but this is most important. This is most significant because this is what Christ has commanded us to do. So if you are going to make one commitment to Boone Trail Baptist Church, it needs to be this. Come, come to Sunday morning groups, that's great. But don't miss this when the people of God gather together. And just as a little aside, I'll encourage you when we're singing, you don't have this vantage as I do every Sunday, but I'll encourage you, don't stare at the screen when we're singing. You know the words by now to most of the songs. Look around you. Look at your brothers and sisters. Look at their faces as they, as they sing the word of God back to him in praise and exaltation. Okay? That's just a little, that was free. Okay? You're not paying me for that. Second, and, and, and learn, live, and lead, these are not so much in order of importance, but they're in order of group size. Okay? On Sunday morning, for, for most of you all, Sunday morning is not going to look any different next Sunday than it did this Sunday or did last Sunday or did any of the Sundays before. But there's going to be a little bit of a shift behind the scenes. There's going to be a shift in principle. And we want to take Sunday morning, and we want to make Sunday morning all about learning the faith. You, you see here, we, we learn the faith. And then second, we, we live the faith, and then we lead others in the faith. And we'll get to that in a few moments. But Sunday morning is all about learning the faith about ingesting that faith, that content of belief that was given to us by Christ and by his apostles to guide us in this life, in this fallen world. So, so Sunday morning, learn groups, uh, this is where, flip your, flip your card over. Woo! 
Next Sunday morning in these various rooms, this is for adults, okay? We're going to have these four different categories of classes in the first semester. And you see we have category and then we have the class. The category is just a, a broad category that, that we plan to maintain. The class in each category is going to change from semester to semester. But, but there you're going to see four different categories of classes. Christianity Applied, Christianity Explored, Genesis to Maps, an overview of the Bible. I especially like that name. Does anyone else think that's funny? Is it just me? No. It is just me, apparently. So, okay. Do I need to explain that one? Thank, thank you. The thumbs up was helpful, right? You open your Bible, and what's the first part of your Bible? Genesis. You go to the back of your Bible, and what do you find? The maps. Genesis to maps. It's an overview. Of, thank, okay, it's clever. Thank you. All right. Oh, someone gave, almost gave me a slow clap. That was great. Thank you. I think that was an accident, actually. Um, but we have an overview of the Bible, and then we have a line by line, which is an inductive study of the Bible. And, and so what we're saying to you is, if you have, a, if you have an itch, go scratch it. There, there, there's no sign-ups for these. You, you just show up Sunday morning in the classroom that you want to go to for this semester so that you can learn, you can explore Christianity and learn why are we Baptists. Or you can see how we apply the Christian faith to our life, and you can learn how to read the Bible for, for life. This is, this is a, an introduction to how it is that we read the Bible. This is not digging way down deep like we do in inductive Bible study, but it's more an introduction. You can, you can go to the overview of the Bible, and you can read about or learn about the promises that are made in the Old Testament. And when we get to the New Testament, you'll learn about the promises that are kept, promises that are made in the Old Testament. Or you can show up in room 122, and they're going to keep on trucking on through the book of Acts and their line-by-line Bible study. And where you go, I don't, I don't care. Go, go and scratch your itch and learn more of the breadth and the depth of the Christian faith. Now, I want to be very careful to, to, to drive this point home. If this for you is only, if this turns into something that's only academic, then you have approached this from the wrong perspective. Let, let me explain it this way. Theology is never rightly done until it transforms our lives. The, the word of God is never rightly understood. The Christian faith that, that we have inherited, that has been passed down from generation to generation, is never rightly known until it transforms how we live our lives and makes us more like Jesus. Okay? So, so if this is only academic from you, you need to change how you're approaching this. Okay? Now, on the flip side, we have to know theology. I'm going I'm to make a statement here, and you're going you're to guffaw, maybe. Every one of you is a theologian. Now, now some of you are saying, I've never been to, never been to seminary. I've never, never read a theology book. You're still a theologian. And not only is everyone in here this morning a theologian, regardless of whether you're a member at Boone Trail, regardless of whether you're even a Christian, but every person who has ever walked on the face of the earth is a theologian. Muslims are theologians. Atheists are theologians. Hindus are theologians. Everybody's a theologian, beca theologian because everybody, by their speech, by their lives, by their beliefs, by their relationships, everybody is saying something about who they think God is. Everybody is a theologian. And so we want you to be good theologians. We want you to be equipped 
in a world where increasingly, and I'm going to say this to you because I was sitting there 12, 13 years ago, 15 years ago, okay? And this is, this is I mean, I'm going to say this, and it's going to, what? 20, yeah, right? Yeah. I, I'm not picking on you. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you guys are here. I'm really glad you guys are here. Uh, and, and, and normally there's more of you here. I know I recognize that it's, it's you know, the Sunday before New Year's and all that. But if we just go by statistics, 75% of you, when you get to college, you're going to walk away from the church. And that's heartbreaking. And the reason you're going to walk away from the church is because, I think, you've never made your faith your own. It's been your, your parents' faith. You, you've never known the depths of the gospel and the depths and the beauty of a relationship with, with Jesus Christ. And so you see it as something that is an inconvenience. And this is not just youth either, is it? I mean, there are plenty of adults running around who see the church as something of an inconvenience. But that's because the faith was never passed down from one generation to the next. And quite frankly, we're tired of seeing that happening. Something's got to give. We, we, we can't keep watching our children walk away from the church the moment they graduate from high school. And so what we want to do is we want to establish our adults in the faith so they can then pass that faith on to their own children. And this is our attempt to do that. Um, we're going we're gonna to hit the ground running in January with our learn groups. Uh, we, we have live groups already. Those are our, our home groups. We're just going to change the name because H, that doesn't start with an L. And uh, uh, we wanted it to alliterate because they're pastors. Um, but we also want to make a point with that. Uh, these, these home groups, these live groups are where we live this faith with one another because the Christian faith is not a faith of individuals. Jesus, uh, you've heard me say this before, I'm going to say it again. Jesus isn't coming back to save you. Sorry. Jesus is coming back to save his church. He's coming back to save us together as a people. And so this is a faith that we live together. You're going to need your brothers and sisters when tragedy strikes, when temptation comes, you need your brothers and sisters to walk alongside of you, to encourage you, and to lift you up. So you need to be living this faith with other people. And then finally, uh, in, at the beginning of February, we are going to be launching lead groups. And lead groups are these groups where we lead other people to be followers of Jesus. You may remember we had Replicate come in a number of months ago do some training for us on disciple making, how it is that we make disciples of other people. And this is, this is the outworking of that. Over these past two months, the folks who are at that training, we've been meeting together, kind of practicing it with one another, week by week, uh, reading through the Bible together, applying the Bible to each other's lives, praying with and for one another. And so now we want to invite the congregation as a whole to come and be part of this. So We'll, we'll say it this week, we'll say it again next week. If you are interested in learning more, not even not, not signing up yet, but if you are interested in learning more about what a lead group looks like and how you might be involved, I want you to take your card and where it says prayer request and communication card, you, you're obviously welcome to write a prayer request there. But we'd also, if you're interested in that, we'd like you to put your name and then just the best way to get a hold of you, preferably an email address. You can put your phone number too. And uh, we will get you some information on how you can be involved in those lead groups so that we can be a people who aren't just concerned with gathering together to worship God on Sundays, as important as it is. And I've stressed the importance. 
but that we are a people who are committed. I'm going to tell you, lead groups, they're going to be inconvenient. But the Christian life is an inconvenient life, okay? We want to be a people who are committed to leading other people to be fully formed followers of Jesus. So you can, uh, you can scrawl your name on that card. You can, you can set it up here on the table, uh, the Lord's Supper table. You can bring it to me or to Wayne if you'd like to, um, and, uh, and we'll make sure uh, to, to get you some more information about that. Okay? So that's, uh, that's your little rundown for groups for this morning. Dwight will elaborate some more uh, next week, and we look forward to seeing you in Learn Groups. Uh, and like I said, Learn Groups, most of you all, you're probably going to stay in the same classroom with the same people. That's great. Uh, wonderful. More power to you. Uh, but we just want you to know that, that, that we want you to be exposed to and to, to ingest and to digest the breadth and the depth of the Christian faith that we have inherited that has been passed down to us. Well, that's enough of me monologuing about groups. Let's turn to the Bible now, shall we? And everybody said, amen. Okay. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. We've looked at Isaiah these these past uh, two weeks. Uh, Fish started us. Dwight picked up last week uh, in Isaiah chapter chapter 9 with that that beautiful description of the Messiah who is to come. Any of you who've spent any extended period of time in a church around Advent and Christmas, I mean, Isaiah is just all over the place, right? Because in Isaiah, we see so many of the the clearest prophecies of the Messiah who, who is to come. I have never heard um, a sermon on Isaiah 52, whether it was around Christmas or not. And I'd be interested, you don't have to raise your hand now, but if, if you have, I would be interested to, to, to hear about it um, afterwards. Um, we're going to look at Isaiah fa- chapter 52, which is seemingly a relatively obscure passage this morning. Um, but I hope by the time we're done that your, your hearts are encouraged and you see just a glimmer of the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me uh, start by, by painting you a picture this morning. It goes something like this. A cold wind blows on the mountain tonight. I'm just kidding. It's, it's not the Frozen song. Um, but it was a cold night. It was a long night. A watchman stands at his post. His eyes are dull and bloodshot because this has been a long night and a series of long nights in the midst of a long battle. And as his watch draws to a close with the dawn of the rising sun, he begins to gather his things. He's slightly more alert now because he's craning his neck to try and find his replacement up there on the watchtower. And out of the corner of his eye, is a glint, just a little shimmer on the horizon. He turns to look, and there upon the hill, silhouetted by the glorious blazing light of the new dawn, is a messenger bearing news. I think most of us are, are familiar with victory celebrations. There are some that are, that are iconic, that are kind of burned in our minds. They're part of the American conscious, consciousness. 
think a lot of that is the result of you know photo modern photography and stuff. But but the ones that come to mind for me, you know, there's that that picture of the the Navy sailor and the young girl in the streets. I think of New York City celebrating uh, victory in Europe Day. I think it was it was either VE Day or VJ Day. So so the Victory Day in World War Two and. And the sailor, he, he dips the girl and he gives her a kiss and there's the confetti of the ticker tape parade falling behind them. Of course, that, that's, that's a picture of just exultation and, and, and jubilation that, that pours itself out in this unknown way. I, I don't know but I, uh, for sure, but I, if I recall correctly, I don't think they knew each other. Uh, thankfully, we're not in a society that does that uh, much anymore. Uh, that'd be uncomfortable. Um, don't, don't try to dip me and kiss me in celebration, please. Um, there are other images like that, though, that are much more solemn. They, they're, they're celebrating victory, but in an entirely different way. And, and I think of that, that picture of the, the corpsmen and the army soldiers, and they're raising the flag on Iwo Jima after the fierce battle against, against the Japanese, right? And, and I think that three of those five soldiers would actually wind up dying within the next few, few days. But there's the American flag being raised after the tumult and the heat and the sorrow of the battle. So some victory celebrations, they're, they're passed down to us, not in pictures, but, but in, in, uh, in writing and in our history, right? The one, because I'm an East Coast elitist and I come from Virginia, the one that jumps out in, in my mind especially is, uh, is the Battle of Yorktown and the surrender of the British general Lord Cornwallis to the revolutionary troops. And, and that was really the, the domino that, that toppled the rest of the dominoes and brought an end to the, to the Revolutionary War there in October of 1781. For those of you who are runners, there are, there are some victories that are celebrated and rehearsed hundreds of times a year by thousands of people all around the globe. And then they, they get these stickers, and they put them on the back of their cars, and they rub it in everyone else's face, right? What is, what is that? What, what does the sticker say? What's that? <laughs> okay, well, 13.1, and then times 2, 26.2. You know, we have the half marathon, and then we have the marathon. And, and that marathon, of course, it, it's uh, based in Greek history when... Philippides, he runs from Marathon, where a battle was taking place with the Persian forces, and he runs the 26.2 miles to Athens, and he shows up there before the council, and he proclaims, joy, victory is ours. And then, like every other marathoner, he falls down dead, right? But, but, but these, are, these are some of the, the images and the experiences of victory that are commonplace in our culture, that that have a place in our collective memory. I'm going to submit to you today that as poignant and rousing as all these classic victory celebrations may be, for God's people at least, whether they're red, yellow, black, and white, whether they're Americans or Nicaraguans or Chinese, wherever they come from, for God's people, all of these victories and any other victory ought to pale in comparison to what Isaiah is describing here. Isaiah 52 is the rousing postlude of the third of Isaiah's four servant songs. So there's 
these four servant songs, these prophecies of the Messiah who is to come. And so the, the third servant song, if you want to refer to it later, is Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. And, and this servant song portrays the servant of God as a prophet who is rejected by men, but a prophet who is upheld and who is vindicated by the Lord. In Isaiah 51, just running up to Isaiah 52, the Lord, he, he tells the people to, to listen and to remember his faithfulness, how he brought them out of a closed womb and an old man, referring to Abraham and his wife Sarah. How he is renewing Zion and Eden, that's in verse 3 of, of chapter 51. He continues talking about justice and his eternal salvation. And oddly enough, in response to the Lord saying all these things, the people cry out to God and they say, wake up, God. The people, they cry out, wake up. And then they recount to God in verses 9 through 11. They rehearse for him all his wondrous deeds. Just look at them here real quick. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces? Talking about Egypt and, and their destruction. Who, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you, verse 10, Lord, who, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? Wake up, God. Why are you sleeping? In response, God says to them in verse 17 of chapter 51, wake yourself. One of the things I appreciate about God is his sarcasm uh, because I feel like I, I'm a purveyor of fine sarcasm and I appreciate it when I see it in other people. But God, he turns the tables on them and says, you wake up. Wake yourself up. He goes on to describe uh, through the end of the chapter in verse 51, their devastation, where, where God himself has poured out the cup of his wrath. And he's done this time and again through various nations. He did it through the Assyrians. He did it through the Egyptians. He does it through the Babylonians and through, through the Persians. God pours out his wrath upon them, and he says of them, they have drunk the dregs and they stagger around, but they're not staggering because they're inebriated. They're not staggering because they've consumed alcohol. They're staggering under the weight of God's holy, burning wrath and righteousness. They're staggering so much so that at the very end of chapter 51, look with me in verse 23. I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. This is how great God's wrath has beat Israel down. So they are like the street upon which these conquering nations would walk. And why has God done this? He's done it in judgment. As he is right and just in doing. Because these people had rejected this prophet that the song was about. This prophet who had come calling them to repentance. The Lord brings judgment upon them. So here we arrive at Isaiah chapter 52. The Lord calls out again. And you'll just read with me now through verse, uh, verse 12. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. 
Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the only familiar part in this passage, right? The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he write its eternal truths in our hearts. Verse 1, the Lord calls out again. Awake, awake. But, but this time, it doesn't have the sarcasm. It doesn't have the snark. He's not saying, you wake up. Wake yourself up. He just says, awake, awake. The, the tone has, has shifted in the Lord's call. No longer any trace of scorn, mockery, or disapproval. There is no lecture about wrath or judgment like comes in Isaiah chapter 51. Now the Lord calls out to Zion, and what does he say to her? He says, put on beautiful garments. Change out the soiled rags you've worn. Instead, clothe yourself in splendor and glory. They have been beaten down. They had been carried away. They had been oppressed by those who were uncircumcised, by those who were defiled, and those who were impure. And now the Lord says, wake up. I've laid out a glorious dress for you to array yourself in splendor. Wake up and be who you were created to be. You see, the people of God were not intended to be slaves. The people of God weren't intended to be impure and defiled. The people of God were created to do what? To reflect the image of God. To reflect his glory and his beauty. And God, recognizing that Israel can't do it for themselves, does it for them. He lays out this dress. I'm, I'm reminded of the scene. I'm going to throw out another reference here that you're not going to understand. Um, you should go watch it. Though. Pretty, pretty Woman, right? Julie Roberts, Ashley Lansford knows what I'm talking about. She went, mm-hmm, okay? But, but whatever you think of Richard Gere and Julie Roberts and Pretty Woman, and I'm realizing now as I'm talking about this that she's a prostitute in the story. So, um, Didn't think that one through. Well, actually, that's, that's incredibly appropriate given the text now that I think about it. Um, 
But, but what, what, is, what does Richard Gere do? I mean, there's this woman he is infatuated with. I don't know what their names are in the movie, I'm sorry. But he is just obsessed with her. And he has fallen for her, and she has nothing. Right? So what does he do? He buys her the pretty dress. And what does he do? He buys her the jewels to adorn herself. Now she looks you know, cool. <laughs> it's so beautiful. But, but Richard Gere, he does and he accomplishes for her what she cannot accomplish for herself. And, and this is what we see happening here in Israel. This Israel who had been defiled, where the uncircumcised and the unclean, they had come in. So the Lord says, wake up. Your nightmare is over. Adorn yourselves in beauty and splendor and glory and majesty. Shake off the dust of your misery and of your humiliation. Stand up. You've been knocked down. Get back up again. Stand up. Now come, take a seat right here on this your throne. Be seated. Be seated, old Jerusalem. Be seated in Zion. He continues on. Loose the bonds of captivity from your neck. Throw off the shackles that held you bound. You're free. This is, a, this is I think, a, a difficult passage for us to really wrap our, our minds around because very few of us understand what, what bondage is like. I think in, in this day and age, probably the, the closest we get is, you know, some type of maybe addiction or just, you know, the crushing weight of debt, you know, just bondage that we might find ourselves in. Sometimes it's through our own poor decisions. Sometimes it's because of circumstances that surround us. But Israel, it wasn't just debt that weighed them down. It wasn't just pining after a certain thing. No, this was actual bondage, shackles on their hands and around their necks. And God says, wake up. You're free. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. What a beautiful picture of the work that God is going to accomplish on behalf of his people. He turns now into the next section, verses 3 through 6, and he, he, he kind of gives us a little bit of the backstory about how this is going to take place. How is it that you're going to wake up and, from your nightmare and have this beautiful dress and have jewels and be, be broken from your bonds and your shackles? He gives us the backstory of what's going to take place. The Lord says, you are sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for Nothing. Isaiah could, could be saying that, that they were sold and the, the transaction hadn't been fully consummated, so no money exchanged hands and the Lord is going to go and get them back. That's a possibility, but it's interesting that he uses this word redeemed. In the Old Testament, it is unthinkable that someone might be redeemed without it costing something of the Redeemer. It may not cost them money. Maybe it cost them land. Maybe it cost them the reputation. Maybe it cost them a life. But if, if something or someone is going to be redeemed, it's going to cost something. Think about all of the 
the sacrifices that we read of in the Old Testament, whether it's the lambs and the oxen in the temple, or the altars that are built as the people sojourn through the wilderness into the promised land, or even back in Egypt, right? That, that, that great final work of God, the tenth time, the tenth plague that delivered Israel. What did it require? Sacrifice. Sacrifice of what? Well, it required a sacrifice of your firstborn. Unless, of course, you had a lamb as a substitute. No one and nothing is redeemed without it costing something. So what might it cost here? Well, what might it cost for, for the tone to shift and for, for God to, to command them to come out of their bondage? For God to, to work out and to paint this redemption story? Well, Isaiah, he leaves us hanging for the, the moment, as he does so well. There's lots of tension in Isaiah. There's lots of unresolved storylines that you pick up and are resolved later on. Let's go on to verse 4 now. Thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to, to sojourn there. So, so what is Isaiah saying? When Israel went into Egypt, they were to sojourn. They're not, they're not calling this their new home. This is a, a temporary stay because of the circumstances with the famine. But once those circumstances have changed, what, what's happening? They're rolling back out. What did happen? Oh, man. Egypt's a, li- a lot nicer than I thought it would be. I mean, they've got, they've got all this really advanced construction. and I mean, building pyramids over here. We don't have anything that big. You know? Lots of food. Maybe we'll just hang out here. And so they hang out, and then they kind of start putting down roots. And what was intended to be a sojourn, now becomes a, a new home, a home that the Lord hadn't given to them. And eventually, what does that home turn into? This home amongst the defiled and the uncircumcised, this home becomes bondage, becomes slavery. Israel had gone into Egypt to sojourn there, and their sojourning because they failed to sojourn, had become slavery, it had become bondage, it had become oppression. Isaiah, he turns next to the Assyrians, and the Assyrians who oppressed them for for nothing. So Isaiah is tracing the history of Israel's oppression. He's bookending it, beginning in Egypt and right up until the time of Isaiah with the Assyrians. There is oppression and oppression and oppression. Then in verse 5, after recounting this history of oppression and having hinted at the redemption which is to come, which would be costly, in verse 5, the Lord reveals his priorities. What have I here? Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, and continually all the day my name is despised. The Lord's two priorities are his name, which is despised, and his people that he has called, that he has bought, that he has made a covenant with. These are the Lord's two priorities in Isaiah's prophecy. 
And I would submit to you that these are the Lord's two priorities even today. There's a little more sass from the Lord here, which I, I like. What have we here, declares the Lord. And you know the situation is especially dire because who's wailing? Are the people wailing? I mean, maybe by implication, but, but who is said to be wailing? The, the rulers. Someone say it. The rulers. Someone say it. Rulers. Thank you, Eddie. Right. The rulers are wailing. So if the rulers are wailing, can you imagine how dire the situation is for the people? There's no hope. There's utter desperation. The rulers are freaking out. I mean, it's like, it's like a child care in Washington, D.C., okay? There's, there's nothing good going right, so much so that everyone is freaking out. This is a dire situation that people find themselves in. But the Lord acts for his people, and the Lord acts for his name. He picks up in verse 6 talking about this. My people shall know my name. Not the names of the Assyrian gods, not the names of the Babylonian gods, not the names of the Egyptian gods. My people shall know my name. In that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Who else had spoken? Who had been speaking to the people all this time? Prophets, right? Isaiah had been speaking. New Jeremiah. Lamentations. No, that's not a prophet. That's just from a particular thing. Moses. So there have been all these prophets who had spoken on behalf of God, but what does God say is going to happen now? I'm not sending someone on my behalf. In that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. No longer speaking through intermediaries, no longer speaking through men who are weak and who are prone to sin. Of course, we know the people. What did they do when the prophets came speaking on behalf of the Lord? Stoned them. They killed the prophets. Jesus testifies to that. How will they know that it is the Lord who is speaking? How will they know the Lord's name? What does the Lord say there? Three beautiful words. Here I Verses 11 through 12 tell us about life after the here I am. Life after the, the incarnation. Life after God himself come in the flesh. And what does the Lord say to his people? Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. So, so we see the people of God here being described as priests, the ones who bear the vessels of of, of the Lord, which is what the people of God were intended to be all along. That's what Adam and Eve were intended to be in the Old Testament. That's what Israel was intended to be after, after the Exodus. That's what you and I are called to be. This is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter is only able to say that, though, because of Christ. All the saints in the Old Testament had been called to be priests, and they all utterly 
failed. But now, because of Christ, because of the one who comes who, who breaks the power of captive sin, because of the one who transforms our death into life, and because of the Holy Spirit that he has given us, now we who are called to be priests can be priests. And we are priests to our God, proclaiming the excellencies of him to those who are far off and cut off from him. He also says, verse 12, you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. What is he hearkening back to now in the history of Israel? He's hearkening back to the Exodus. And in the Exodus, you know, we have lots of death of the firstborn, things are a little unsettled, right? And, uh, and what does Israel have to do? They have to leave in haste, right? They, they, they leave in haste so much so that they don't even have time for their bread to, to rise. They leave in haste, and what are they carrying as they go? Plunder, booty, you know, gold and silver of the Egyptians, all these things which are defiled. But now God says... Because here I am, now, God says, when you go, you're not fleeing away. It's not in, in haste. You're not carrying undefiled things with you. You have nothing to be concerned about or to fear for. You're not going to come to an ocean and have an Egyptian army chasing you down from behind. Oh, instead, this time, the Lord's going to go before you, and he's going to be your rear guard. And he's going to be beside you and all around you. Go and have nothing to fear. This is the change in the narrative of the Bible that results, or that is the result of the coming of Jesus Christ. No longer are God's people expected and assumed to be fickle and helpless like Israel was. But now because of Christ, because of his fulfillment with the law of the law, because of our union with him and because of his gift of the Holy Spirit, we are a people who are called to be confident. We are a people who are called not to have attitudes and thoughts of things that are unclean, of things that are defiled. We're called to be a nation of holy priests to our God. I sometimes wonder if in the modern church we have domesticated defilement and unrighteousness, and we have made it acceptable. We just kind of turned it into a my bad situation. Not recognizing what our chasing after defilement and uncleanness says about our Lord and what we think of him. Church defilement and uncleanness is not acceptable in the eyes of God, in the eyes of his church in the eyes of his people. So we are a people who ought to be pure and set apart, just like those priests, set apart for the glory of God. This is why we have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, because we are the ones who bear the vessels of the Lord. So we are set apart. We are consecrated. We as the people of God, just like Israel is told here, you know, this, this, is a, this is a prophecy of what is to come for them, okay? This is future tense that he's using. Just like those people, we are to leave behind those unclean things. 
We're not to be a people who are fumbling about, scared of our own shadows, or scared of the condemnation and the criticism of the world. Church, we are not those who go out in haste. We are people who ride out in victory. We ride with all the confidence in the world because the Lord has gone before us. The Lord is coming behind us. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. And even if our life is required of us and is taken of us, our coffin is the Rolls Royce which will ferry us into the inheritance Jesus Christ has won on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, we cannot lose. And so we ought to, and we must live as a people who cannot lose. People who cannot lose are people who go to isolated islands with cannibals and give their lives so they might hear the gospel. Whether it's months ago with John Allen Chow or whether it's Centuries ago with Henry Payton. That's what, that's what people who cannot lose do with their lives. They give them up so that others might know. Church, the, the call of God to Israel through the prophet Isaiah is the same call for us today. Wake up. Wake up. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For word has come from the fight. The messenger on the horizon, he comes bearing a message. In Zion, our God reigns. Let's pray. God, we proclaim and we agree today with your messenger that you reign in Zion. And so we ask now that you would reign in our hearts as well. That you would tear down the walls that we build where we section off portions of our life trying to keep them outside of your gaze and that instead you would give us grace and courage to live our lives as people who cannot lose. As people who, who, like the Apostle Paul, recognize that, that for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Give us that boldness, we pray. Give us that conviction. May your gospel and may this faith dwell in us so richly that it pours out in our lives in such a manner that a skeptical world looks at us. and Though they may not believe, at least they might respect our confidence and our courage, our compassion and the mercy and love we show to those who are so needy and who may be unlike us. Give us a heart for the people here. Give us a heart for the nations so that we may join that heavenly chorus and we may declare that you, God, you reign. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand and sing in response to the word of God.